0: Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Psychostimulant use can be associated with the development of physical dependence during the course of use and with symptoms of withdrawal that include Hypersomnia, increased appetite, and depressed mood when use ceases. In the pivotal clinical studies of lisdexamphetamine for the treatment of binge eating disorder, study participants were treated with lisdexamphetamine for up to 38 weeks. This report examined whether physical dependence developed during the course of treatment in individuals with binge eating disorder as evidenced by presence of withdrawal symptoms following the cessation of treatment. In the current post-hoc analyses, participants were treated with 50 mg or 70 mg of lisdexamfetamine for up to 12 weeks in two short-term efficacy studies and for up to 38 weeks in a maintenance-of-efficacy study. The presence of withdrawal symptoms was assessed using the 16-item amphetamine cessation symptom assessment. Across all studies, mean and median amphetamine cessation symptom assessment aggregate scores were low on the day of the last dose of amphetamine and for the seven days following the cessation of treatment. Mean and median aggregate scores on the amphetamine cessation symptom assessment did not approach the maximum possible score at any time during the seven-day post-treatment period. Taken together, the authors conclude that these findings suggest that the abrupt termination of Lisdex amphetamine treatment was not associated with symptoms of amphetamine withdrawal in individuals diagnosed with binge eating disorder at the exposure durations and doses used in these studies. This clinical research was funded by Shire Development, LLC, a member of the Decada Group of Companies. The number of prescriptions for antidepressants in England and Wales has almost doubled in the past decade. The objective of this article was to describe the current prescribing rates of different antidepressants by general practices. The authors collated the prescribing behavior in each general practice in the year April 1, 2017 to March 31, 2018. The monthly general practice prescribing data reports for medication prescribing for each British national formulary code in practice, as well as the prescriptions, quantity, and cost, were examined in relation to prescribing practice. The data show that 2.1 billion doses of antidepressant were prescribed to a total population of 52 million people. This equates to 11% of individuals taking one or more antidepressants on any day. SSRIs were the most prescribed class of antidepressants, with sertraline the most prescribed SSRI. The other most prescribed antidepressants were citalopram, fluoxetine, and mirtazapine. Some older agents have to be prescribed at a very high tariff. Broadly, the findings are in keeping with the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence guidance in that the bulk of the prescriptions were for SSRIs. Regular audit of patient treatment at a general practice level will ensure appropriate targeted use of licensed medications as supported by the evidence base. The objective of this issue's continuing medical education offering was to identify the prevalence of secondary schizophrenia or organic psychosis causing a schizophrenia-like syndrome in patients with a prior diagnosis of schizophrenia presenting to a psychiatric hospital in Portugal. 200 files were retrospectively assessed through online records of patients admitted to the hospital with an ICD-9 diagnosis of schizophrenia in a one-year time span. Results show that one-fourth of patients received a new organic psychosis diagnosis, including epilepsy-related schizophrenia-like psychosis, dementia-related schizophrenia-like psychosis, brain mass, stroke-related schizophrenia-like psychosis, and encephalitis-related schizophrenia-like psychosis. Among patients with organic psychosis, the mean delay until correct diagnosis was 12 years. The most striking feature of this study was the high prevalence of incorrect diagnoses of schizophrenia with patients not receiving the minimum correct assessment before that diagnosis, resulting in negative consequences. Caution is recommended when diagnosing severely psychotic patients independently of their acute or chronic condition. Clinicians should be aware that organic psychosis may cause secondary schizophrenia. Stigma in physicians' attitudes toward psychiatric patients has been reported as already present in medical school. This study examined the effect of a novel anti-stigma intervention curriculum in reducing stigma toward psychiatry among medical students. Medical students from eight hospitals in central Israel were divided into intervention and control arms. The students completed a 30-item Attitudes Toward Psychiatry Scale and the attitudes towards mental illness scale at psychiatry rotation onset and conclusion. The intervention was designed to target prejudices and stigma by direct informal encounters with people with serious mental illness during periods of remission and recovery. Supervised small group discussions followed these encounters to facilitate processing of thoughts and emotions that ensued and to discuss salient topics in psychiatry. Significant between-group differences were found at endpoint for attitudes toward psychiatry and psychiatric patients. Although changing attitudes toward psychiatry as a career choice was not part of the intervention, a significant between-group difference emerged by endpoint. The authors conclude that the combination of live social contacts and small-group discussions is effective in reducing stigma in medical students' perceptions of people with mental illness and psychiatry. A reduction in stigma towards people with mental illness produced an improvement in students' attitudes towards psychiatry as a career choice. Why do some patients with HIV-AIDS experience a decrease in self-esteem after diagnosis while others do not? The authors of this article attempted to answer this question by investigating the self-esteem and defense mechanisms in HIV-AIDS patients. This prospective cross-sectional study included 29 patients diagnosed with HIV-AIDS and 29 healthy subjects. Participants were assessed using a sociodemographic and clinical data form, the Rosenberg Self-Esteem Inventory, the Defense-Style Questionnaire, and the Beck Anxiety Inventory. Patients with HIV-AIDS had significantly higher scores on the fantasy, psychosomatic symptoms, and parental interest subscales of the Rosenberg Self-Esteem Inventory. There was no significant difference between the groups on the other subscales, including the self-esteem subscale. There was no correlation between the duration of the disease and self-esteem. The authors conclude that self-esteem in HIV-positive patients may be related to the stability of the self-esteem concept. Employing psychotherapeutic approaches that increase the use of functional mature defense mechanisms and limiting the use of non-functional defense mechanisms in the treatment of HIV-AIDS patients could increase treatment success rates. Depression has been associated with high mortality in people with diabetes. This cross-sectional study assessed the prevalence and associated factors of depression among diabetic outpatients from two hospitals in Ethiopia. A systematic random sampling technique was used to select study participants, and depression was assessed with the Hospital Anxiety and Depression Scale. Results show that the prevalence of depression among diabetic outpatients was higher than that of studies conducted in different settings. Depression was significantly associated with female sex, rural residency, type 2 diabetes mellitus, duration of illness greater than 6 years, high fear of complications, and poor social support. The authors conclude that, generally, their findings show a high prevalence of depression among diabetic outpatients in Ethiopia, which demands close monitoring and early appropriate management to prevent its progression to more chronic and severe forms. In this brief report, the authors present an unusual case of severe depression that developed as a result of a series of neurologic insults starting with a stroke that was followed by a rare form of seizures known as lateralized periodic discharges. Additionally, the patient was also prescribed the anti-epileptic drug levetiracetam, which further complicated her psychiatric deterioration. Levetiracetam has gained popularity as an anticonvulsant due to several advantages but it is important to note its well-established association with psychiatric decompensation. The authors caution providers to consider the psychiatric adverse effect profiles when choosing an anti-epileptic drug for a patient with depression. This case highlights the complex interplay of structural, electrophysiologic, and pharmacologic factors in the pathogenesis of post-stroke depression. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to find numerous case reports on a variety of topics. You can also browse interactive activities from our CME Institute. We update our website weekly with new postings so there is always something new to explore. As an all-electronic journal, PCC has an unlimited amount of space in which to publish articles and features. We welcome ideas that any of you may bring to our attention for we want to expand both the breadth and depth of our articles and specialty sections. Please take advantage of the open invitation to join many of your colleagues in submitting your research to PCC. We also ask that you keep us abreast of trends you see in your practice and topics that would be interesting to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC podcast, your place for CNS sound bites.